So Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Karma wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces the Lord, by him, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off and carved image and metal image. I will make your uh, your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord and ask you to respond. Thanks be to God. So this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we do pray that you would comfort your people with this passage. It might be one of the darkest minor prophets, but I pray that we will see the light of your goodness and your glory shining through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the famous line that you know is, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Famous opening line of Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, right? And as we've been reading in the book of Jonah, as you've been considering with me, spending time reflecting on what that book means, uh, we're now turning it to look at Nahum. And even though both books circle around one city, what we find is this one city, when contrasted by different eras, different prophets, different centuries, But we find really this one city is really a tale of two cities. And as we move, just in fact, as Dickens says, from the best of times with the book of Jonah, and now we're going to see with Nineveh here in the book of Nahum, it is indeed the worst of times. Judgment has come upon Nineveh. As we covered the book of Jonah, what we read, if you recall, was incredible. We can only dream of something like that happening amongst us in our Mount Hood community. That all the city would repent. The nation, Assyria, remember the the, uh, nation, big nation, Assyria, global dominating Assyria, with its capital, Nineveh, 
They were staring down the barrel of God's gun. 120,000 people were looking down the barrel of God's gun aimed right at them. And their evil and violent ways had been brought up before God. And he said, this is it. And so Jonah was sent to declare a particular message to these people. Yet Nineveh repented. Nineveh fasted. And God turned from the calamity that he was going to put upon them. So that we read in chapter 3. Let me highlight a few verses of chapter 3 in Jonah. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The king then publishes a decree that we heard. The decree went out and it said, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Amazingly, this is exactly what happens. The entire pagan city comes to belief in Yahweh, the one true God. They repent. Disaster is withheld. Jonah's ministry spanned from 782 BC to 753 BC. And I think at this moment, as we turn now from the book of Jonah to Nahum, seeing a timeline might be helpful for you. You probably, if your vision's like mine and and it's getting worse, it might be a little fuzzy to read. I'll highlight the dates there. As you go from from, uh, left to right, you'll see that in 770, this is the time when Jonah is preaching repentance to the city of Nineveh. It's around 770-ish. Then by the time we come to 722 BC, Nineveh goes back to their violent ways and begins to destroy the northern kingdom. Where Jonah was. Then, fast forward, Nineveh destroys another key city, the the city of Thebes, which would be down in the Egyptian area by 664. Then we believe somewhere around 650 BC, this is where it seems that Nahum has come on the scene and is now prophesying. So this is, you know, almost a, a century later, Nahum comes on the scene, he's preaching against Nineveh. And then by 612, Nineveh is utterly destroyed. The city that goes and destroys other cities by 612, because of Nahum's prophecy, that city comes to utter ruin. So hopefully this helps give you the timeline. And eventually the city, the city of Nineveh, was completely wiped off the face of the map. So utter was the destruction of Nineveh. Friends, you need to understand, we didn't know where the city was until more recent times. It's only through archaeological digs that we were able to unearth the city and say, oh, here's where it was at, because it was indeed completely and utterly utterly destroyed. And so, what is it that baffles me? And What is it that ought to baffle you? But really, in some ways, you say, well, it shouldn't. Is how did they go from 770 with utter repentance all the way to 722 back to their evil ways? Do you think about that? A city that had the most massive scale repentance that we've ever seen. How did they so quickly in the span of, well, I don't know, maybe 50 or so years go from repentance Back to evil that would lead eventually to their destruction. 
Well, again, again, through scripture, we see that the same thing occurs again and again. It's called spiritual drift. The tendency for us individually and us collectively is to move away from the Lord. This is why grandparents may be on fire for the Lord and why children might just be mediocre. Well, I'll take Jesus when it works for me. And why grandchildren can then be very rebellious against the Lord. Spiritual drift is what is normal. Do you recall the story of what happened with the, with the Mennonite church through the 19th and 20th centuries? The first century dug into the gospel. And because of this, the, the church flourished. They grew. Things were going well. They lived out socially what they believed. The gospel worked its way into their hearts and then all the way out to their hands. They b- deeply believed the truth of Jesus and then it moved into how they cared for one another. Everybody from the poor in their communities uh, to, to helping out the educational institutions. There, it worked and percolated itself out in the first generation. But by the second generation, the, the gospel began to become assumed. So that the Mennonite church, oftentimes what happened was they, they might keep the social aspects They might keep the soup kitchen. They may keep caring for people in the community. But slowly and surely, their pulpits began to lose, in many places, the gospel. They began to turn away from it. So that by the third generation, the decline had happened so bad that the grandchildren are saying, I don't know why we're even bothering. Uh, With the second generation, it was just a matter of pragmatics. Why should we live good lives? Why should we you know, be honest and not cheat and work hard? Well, because there's a pragmatic benefit to it. But then eventually with no gospel, it's who cares? Make up your own way. Do whatever you want to do. And so there becomes outright rebellious living against God. And friends, I just want you to hear this morning. This can happen not just in two generations. This can happen in one. It can happen within our church. It can occur within your own walk with the Lord. Within this span of a few years to a few, maybe even just a decade, you can go from being on fire in your walk with Jesus to just, meh, maybe I'll go to church when I feel like it, just to sprinkle a few times a year. And meanwhile, spiritual drift occurs. The natural tendency, the natural tendency is for us to drift away from the Lord and toward other things that will distract us or bring us to an ungodly way of life. This is what had happened in Nineveh. And so I warn everyone here, individually and collectively, I'm warning all of us that we must return again and again to a love of God. Everything hinges on your love of Jesus Christ. And so this picture that we see this morning is this. What we're looking at in Nineveh 1, salvation of God's people brings judgment. That sounds intense. And it is. The salvation of God's people brings judgment. I will be attempting to unpack this by looking at two sides of the same coin. Side one is the jealous and avenging God. So we're going to look at one side of the coin, the jealous and avenging God. Then we'll flip the coin and we'll look on the other side. And what we'll see there is the good news of coming peace. And we'll see that both sides of of the coin must be maintained together or you lose the coin. So first, side one, the jealous and avenging God. Not entirely sure. Maybe you noticed this. As I was reading this morning's scripture, 
I wonder if in the back of your mind you began to notice how heavy the language here of Nahum was. Uh, it's almost as though this book is entirely just like a, a heartless joy at the fact that, ne- that Nineveh is going to fall. Uh, it, it seems to be this judgment language that's heavy and, and you're saying, boy, I, this doesn't sound very joy-filled. I mean, there's much background to why we've come to this place. We've seen some of this through the book of Jonah. We've understood that the, this, this people of Nineveh were a violent, wicked people. And, and so there, there is the, the understanding, there's a background to all of this. The, the kingdom of Israel had been split in two. The southern kingdom was facing judgment just as well as the northern kingdom because they were under judgment for the rebellious ways. They had broken covenant with God. And therefore, the kingdoms were both being broken apart. And even as they were split in two, they were fracturing from inside as well. And Nineveh had already been warned to turn from their violent ways. So both judgment on Israel and judgment on Nineveh. Here we see that God is keeping his word. I, I hope you notice the language here with the second half of, of verse 3 through, through 5. Where we see this picturing of, of God in this oracle. Verse 3, the second half there, says the way is in the, his way, meaning the Lord, is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. rivers. Bashan. And Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Being that this book opens by telling us this is an oracle from this prophet Nahum, it's not a prophet that we know a whole lot about, and we don't know a lot about the location of the town of Elkosh, but but you need to understand an oracle is something we're not typically familiar with, but it is there throughout the Old Testament. We see it again and again. It's a a message from God to a particular people regarding a particular issue, typically revolving around sin. And so typically when we hear oracles, they're divine judgment statements, um, and it's relating to something negative. So we see throughout scripture, an oracle against Egypt, an oracle against, uh, you know, maybe Tyre or Babylon or Damascus. And the oracle can include direct speech. For example, when we look at Ezekiel and the people in Judah in their time, the oracle would have direct speech saying, you will go into exile. That's just direct telling you, this is what's going to happen. Sometimes the oracle could also include poetical uh, aspects. So, for example, with Ezekiel, I will spread my net over over the the king of of, uh, Israel. In other words, if, if I say, I'm going to sp- spread my net over you, what does that imply? I, I'm trapping you. I'm pulling you away. I'm going to pull you out of the sea. And so the picture is, I'm going to exile you out of the land of Egypt over to Babylon. So you get direct speech, you get poetry. And here this morning, we have poetry in this oracle. Here we read that God's way is in the whirlwind and the storm. Does that mean literally when you see a storm out there that this is God's way? It's a picture, isn't it? The clouds are the dust of his feet. Clearly, that's not saying that God physically just is stomping around on earth and every time you see a cloud, you go, oh, God must have been walking over there because there's, that's not the point. The point is, our God is big. He's so big that you can picture him as though the clouds are just the little bit of dust that he kicks up as he's walking down the trail. And this judgment language here then is to remind you and I that God is far greater. He's far stronger and more powerful than you and I could imagine. 
So when he speaks of judgment, you and I, we need to listen. We must take heed. Here he's speaking of drying up the rivers. And and there are three cities that would have been well known to Nineveh. So he mentions uh, uh, Carmel. And he mentions um, Lebanon and Bashan. Now, Carmel would have been close to Judah, close to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Lebanon would be up in the north and then Bashan down in the south. So it's almost as if God is saying to Nineveh, who would be, well, from your position, placed over here. And then these three cities in a band like this, God is saying, look, these cities that were well known for their agricultural produce, known for doing so well. They had all the water that they needed to thrive. And so there was plenty of fruit and vegetable and livestock. I can dry up all of the rivers so that all these cities, these well-known cities would starve. Nineveh, if I can do that to them, what do you think I can do to you? You who are against me, you who have been wicked and acted against my people. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Then with verses six to eight, Nahum shows us nobody escapes God's coming judgment. When Nahum asks, who can stand? Who can stand? He's implying an answer. It means nobody. Who can stand when God comes to judge you? Nobody can. Consider the heaviness of verse 8. Look at 8 here. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Same God who attacks the agricultural centers and can drive them out is the same God who can bring the flood of judgment. I don't know about you, but I think of Noah's flood. Who is it who can flood and bring utter ruin to all of humanity? And then we see in verses 9 through 11, another picture here. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble and fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. The picture here is total judgment. In verse 11, talks about a counselor. I think there's a single person in mind here. There's some disagreement about this, but it, it reads as perhaps um, a king might be in mind. One who is counseling the people and directing them and leading them on where to go. And so I wonder if Nahum here at this point is speaking to the king of Nineveh, saying there came from you, Nineveh, this worthless king who has counseled you and said, let us continue our evil ways. God doesn't care. We can do whatever we want. And so as the NIV reads, from you, Nineveh has come forth one who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. And if the king of Nineveh then is in mind, verses 12 through 14 have a very logical flow. The Lord says, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. Now, just pausing right here. It's almost as if we're trying to suss out, is the Lord speaking to the king or is he back speaking to Israel? And it seems to be he's speaking at Israel here and in that um, last verse. But then verse 14, the Lord has given you a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image and I will make your make your grave for you are vile. I think he's speaking to the king of Nineveh there, saying, you're a vile king. Your end, your grave is coming. This arrogant leader has put himself, positioned himself against God. And he presses on as if there is no God in heaven, as if this vile way can be excused. But the message here is 
because it stands for our leaders now. I think that we, our leaders need to hear this today and we need to pray for our leaders, but I think they need to hear and the nation's leaders need to hear that when you act as an enemy of God, it will not go well for you or your nation. For myself, I can only think of Psalm 2, where we read, Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the, of the earth set themselves against the rulers, and they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But then the psalm turns to, to the God in heaven and says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, back to Nahum. Here too, God laughs. And he will not be mocked. This counselor, this king, will be brought to utter ruin. And here the grave of this counselor, it is in connection, interestingly, with the coming news of peace. And so now we're turning I've been talking about a coin with two sides. The first side is that the jealous and avenging God is present and is in view here in this book. But you flip the other side of the coin, must have both. The second side is that there's good news of coming peace. So I want you to see that in this chapter as well. The good news of coming peace. Part of our understanding this book, I think, is getting the name of the book right. The name of the book is named after the prophet. His name is Nahum. What does Nahum mean? Nahum means comfort. Now, if you think about it, you're saying to yourself, now, why is a book that's talking about judgment on Nineveh, destroying the king, destroying the people, bringing them to utter ruin? Why is this supposed to be a, a bring me comfort? That doesn't make any sense. Well, remember, this wasn't a book that was written to Nineveh. Who's the book written to? The book of Nahum was written to the people of God, wasn't it? So if it's written to the people of God, this is a book that comforts the people of God because they're able to see our enemies who've been attacking us, who've been taking us, who've been beheading us, this wicked city that God will remember them, that God will judge them and that God has not given up on them and joined their enemies. Nahum makes it clear. Sprinkled throughout the judgment language was a God that was slow to anger and great in power, verse 3. And also we read a comforting word to us that the the guilty won't get off scot-free. No, no, no. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, many will be cut down and pass away. Though I afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Yes, God will break their yoke. They won't have the power over them anymore. Moreover, good news in verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off and carved image and metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Friends, this is good news for Israel of coming peace upon them. So Nahum here, the picture he wants us to see, they, they couldn't fully see it, but we now know that by 612, as I showed you up on the timeline earlier, Nineveh would be no more. God would be faithful to his people and lead them eventually out of Babylon, back to their land where he would provide for them. Not only a righteous king, not only would God give them a king who was very unlike the king of Nineveh, God would give them an entirely new king, an entirely new priest, an entirely new prophet with a new covenant. Looking at Nineveh, Nineveh is the poster child for those who have been hardening themselves against God 
the judgment will fall on them. And right in the middle of all this judgment language, we read, God is good. What? God is good? Good for judging? Good for having wrath and anger? That doesn't make sense. Let me just ask you, church, briefly. When was the last time injustice happened to you? When was the last time that something didn't go as it really should have? The insurance company didn't follow through on their promises. Uh, When was the last time the workplace demanded something that was unreasonable of you? Or someone caused a loss of money for you, and though you tried to work it out, there's just no way around it, you lost. When was the last time somebody spoke evil or wrongly of you? Well, just something even more simple. When was the last time you're driving down 26 here, somebody almost cut you off? And if with each of these little matters, some of them greater, some of them more trivial, if you and I shake our fists and say, injustice, how dare they? Who do they think they are doing this to me? How can we expect God then to sit back unaffected when his own people have been literally beheaded by these Assyrians? When his own people have been, as it's listed out in the history books, the king bragged about how he flayed people openly, about how he wickedly killed and impaled these people on sticks and poles. These people were a violent, evil people. And if God sat back and just said, well, it is what it is. I don't want to get involved. I'm a God of peace. I'm just going to let these people go. Friends, he wouldn't be a righteous God, would he? And if he's not a righteous God, should we listen to him? And if he's not a righteous God, can he be good? Can he be really even God? Can, if God's not good, can he be God? Friends, mama bears are only good mama bears if they fiercely protect their young. And God is only God if, if every injustice, small, large, is put right. And perhaps your Christian growth here this morning means that you need to come to see both sides of these coin make up the coin. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful God. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. There's side one. Flip it over. Side two, verse seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Another way to put it is God is good because God is wrathful. I hope you see that. God is good because God is wrathful. Salvation of God's people does bring judgment. We also see that he is good because everyone who turns into him, he will provide refuge for them. Let me read verse 7 again. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now, I've been in some turbulent conditions. I've been on the mountain before with must have been about minus 10 degrees before wind chill. And the wind gusts were somewhere between 60 and 80 miles an hour. If I had pulled off my coat for any length of time, uh, it wouldn't take long before I would succumb to the elements. But do you know why in those moments with the storm raging, minus 10, winds howling and gusting, a complete storm ensuing and enveloping the mountain, and maybe the power is going to go out. you know why I don't even care? Because I walk 10 feet into the lodge. So you don't care at all when you're like 10 feet from the lodge, do you? 
Now, when you're hours and hours, you worry. But when you're 10 feet from the lodge, you just walk in and you like sit by the fire. You grab a cup of hot cocoa. And you said, well, come on, Storm, bring it on. I want to see the worst you got because I'm doing pretty well in here. Because we are safe, protected, warm. The lodge is a refuge from the storm. And for all who trust in God, who turn to him, what is it that we find? In God, he is our refuge from the storm. Amazingly, the answer to the storm of God's judgment and wrath against us for our sin is God. God's bringing the storm of judgment. But for all those who are in him, you will find refuge and you are safe from the storm. If you are this morning running from him and rebelling against him, I just want you to know this morning, you only have to walk 10 feet in and God says, safe. You just run to God and you say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I want to trust in you. I want to walk with you. Be my refuge. And he says, come on in. Sit by the fire. Here's a cup of hot cocoa. Well, maybe not the cocoa, but you get the point. God is our refuge. And the book of Nahum helps us see all sin will be punished. No sin will be ignored. God will by no means clear the guilty so that sin will be punished at the coming day of judgment. Or friends, I want you to know it will be absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. The greatest news that we could hear this morning in light of God's judgment that is coming for all mankind because we've all stood there in our own ways with our fists in the air is that Jesus Christ is our refuge who shielded us from the judgment of sin, who bore on the cross all of our sin, who willingly laid down his life for all those who call upon his name. And this means that when you and I confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ uh, is God and that the Lord raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation of God's people brings judgment. And this judgment fell on Christ for all of those who trust in him. And thanks be to God that in his death, death was slain. The grave could not hold him down or any who take refuge in him. And this confessing with the mouth that you and I do, it is believing in the heart. This is for our entire walk with Jesus. We can't turn from this. This wasn't just to be for a moment in time in the past. This is to be an ongoing trusting that today, Jesus Christ is my refuge. Tomorrow, I'm running into him to be protected. Now, I opened up this morning. I wanted to remind you that the love of the Lord can be lost in a single generation or even two. And that this church must be diligent. If you're like me and you're thinking desperately, I want my children, I want my kids to walk with Jesus and to know him as their refuge. I want my kids and maybe someday my future grandkids to join me with me with Christ forever. So that what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to bring that about? How can I make that happen? Well, look at verse 15 here. Verse 15 reads, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, right in the middle of this verse is the call on the Jews to be genuine Jews. In other words, the call for genuine followers of Yahweh to remain as followers of Yahweh. To keep. He says, keep what you've got. I've given you how to follow me. Stick with this. And so we're to keep the feasts and to keep our vows. Now, 
we're a bit removed from their situation. We do not celebrate feasts and vows in the same way that um, Old Testament Jews would. We're not called to, to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Atonement. But our feast, we are to keep. Our feast is what the Day of Atonement pointed forward to, isn't it? The Day of Atonement by means of the cross, the resurrection, the meal that you and I regularly celebrate together. That is our feast. When we come down the aisle together, this is what is helping remind us, today I need his refuge. Today I need his forgiveness. Today his body and blood cover my sin and transgression. And so we come and we celebrate this together. We are a people who have all come into the same refuge. And the vows that we make are the vows that we make of remaining committed to one another and to the Lord, to, to love God, to love each other. Uh, this begins at our baptism and it continues on as we are in, together in church membership with one another. And in loving him, we bear one another's burdens and we so fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 6. And I see it as right there on that front that these are the means to raise up the next generation of Christians. Our nation is you know, in need of a new generation of Christians to come up, but even more so our own church home right here. So I'm praying and I ask that, would you pray with me that in this church body, there would be our grandchildren here and children raising up to love the Lord and that they might teach us in the coming years and decades ahead on what it looks like to remain faithful to Christ when the king who is wicked and vile comes against us. What will we do to ensure that we don't move from a repentant, gospel-embracing church who wants to live for the Lord? What can we do? Well, let me, let me give pragmatically a, a few things for us to consider. First, really, this is the Lord's work. This isn't Thomas's work. This isn't your work. This is the Lord's work. But the Lord uses means. And so he's using you, church body. And Christians within this church, I hope you see that everyone from teachers in the kids' ministry to leaders— to most potently in this church, parents. You parents are playing a pivotal role in discipling your own children. So as I'm closing, I want to offer just a few ways in which we might keep our vows, keep our feasts, so to speak. One is, ask yourself, am I pursuing God and godliness? Parents and grandparents, I, I pray that you would let there be a genuine, real love for the Lord that can be seen by your children or grandchildren. When they look on you, they say, oh yes, my, my grandparents, my, my parents, they're genuine Christ followers. And so one of the key ways, second, that this comes about is by speaking with your children. I don't know if your tendency, my tendency is I've been busy. I might be doing church stuff. That's all great. But when I'm home, it's just kind of home stuff. Maybe you guys can, you know, resonate with that, that you got your church box and then you got your home box. But friends, these boxes must collapse into one box that are Jesus boxes, both in the church on Sunday morning, but also at home, that our conversation can regularly come again and again to Jesus and to the instructions of Paul and to others. And, 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 and that this is not just meant for the church life that, that you and I, even we can speak encouraging words to our children. You, you're aware of the, the rule of seven for every negative thing you say, give seven positive things. And so if you have, you know, if you want to chastise your child by saying, no, don't do that. Make sure you bring along seven. I see that when nobody was looking, 
that you cared for your sister and you helped her. That's a thing that Jesus would love to see you do. Or I I saw you picking up your Bible and reading along. That's awesome. Bring encouragement. Our children need encouragement, not just don't do this, don't do that. Third, sing with your children. Sing with your kids. Sing the same worship songs that we sing here on a Sunday morning. Um, Because this helps connect those boxes of church and home together. Let them see also your repentance when you sin. Let them, even the ability to say, you know, I just want you to know, there was a period in my, time, my life when I was younger and, and, I, and I was not living the most godly or the most honoring. And tell your children that. It will, it will cover a multitude of sins when we come before our kids in repentance and show them that we too are sinners who need Jesus and we need him as our refuge. The other thing is focus on the good news and the gospel of Christ. Um, remember that the tendency in our spiritual drift is to, like the Mennonite church, drift towards works. Remember, works are useless if they're not embedded in the good news of what Christ has done for us. And so, as you speak with your kids and grandkids, bring it again and again to grace in the cross. Bring it again and again to the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Let them see you be joyful about that. This is not bad news. This is Good news, it should bring a genuine smile to our hearts and and a genuine affection and a warm heart for our kids and grandkids. As I close, I want to tell you I'm grateful that we are in a church that I think has third generation children of faith. I, I think we're in a church where we do see somewhere a grandparent has followed Jesus in this church and children who are now adults are following Christ, and that we're going to see, by God's grace, more children and teens who are growing up before our eyes who also are following Christ. It means that we take seriously the salvation of God's people. It brings judgment. And that in response, you and I, we run under Christ, our refuge. We're protected by him. It's where again and again we rejoice. Looking as we do again here at verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows those here who take refuge in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that amidst the decay of our nation, amidst the wickedness and vileness of the kings of the earth right now, Lord, that you would shelter your people that you would protect the the future generations, that there would be a remnant who remain trusting in you. Lord, help us see in light of the bad news, there is good news. And let our hearts not grow faint or weary or tired. I pray that you would give us a new strength for the new era that we find ourselves in. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.